take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends. Welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Hopefully this time for real. Thanks for sticking with us. What a goofy experience. Today is June the 2nd. We're going to launch into a discussion with fellow suspendables. As you can see, I've got Garrett O'Boyle hanging out with me. We are now moved indoors off a balcony where we were getting buzzed by repeated flybys by the United States Coast Guard because George Hill decided to upset the members of DHS, and they decided to come back and let us know they were displeased with such things. Uh, we don't confirm that, but since we've moved inside, they have decided that they are no longer interested in flying in a circle and hovering right over our position. So that tells you something. Florida gardeners and leaf blowers didn't make it any better. So now we are back. I'm going to give you guys a mic check real quick, and then I'm going to thank our sponsors. Uh, Garrett, give me a mic check. Check, check. Excellent. People give me a good thumbs up when you hear Garrett, and same thing with George. How's your mic? Five, four, three, two, one. He's a good counter, and he's able to uh, give us all that. Folks, we got a couple different camera angles here. Pretty silly. Let me uh, do a quick thank you to my sponsor, which is going to be uh, Catholic Vote. There they are right there. Catholic Vote, catholicvote.org. You can go and check them out, and you can sign up for The Loop. The Loop is an email list that will give you access to all kinds of useful and pertinent information as a Christian in this country. Uh, that was a big sigh, Garrett. Oh, sorry. He sighed about Catholics or Christians in this country who are facing some tough times. Uh, when you look at what Catholic Vote does, they're an advocacy group. They are actually suing the FBI right now. They helped organize the boycott of the of the uh, L.A. Dodgers. And they're just, in general, advocating for a position that not only probably supports all of the Christian ideals that you have, but also uh, conservative ideals as a whole at this point. As I discussed with uh, Rob Maynes the other day on Red Voice Media, a lot of the things that they have targeted – Catholics for specifically are really not even just Christian positions, they're mainline conservative positions, lowercase c. If you believe in the right to life, if you believe in a uh, stopping of abortion, if you want to be able to parent your children the way that you think that you should, all these things are sort of relevant. CatholicVote.org. You can go to that and sign up for the loop. Very, very thankful of that. I'm getting a bunch of thumbs up in the live chat. Thanks, folks, for joining us. I see all my favorites, all my regulars out there. Scott, thank you for joining us. I haven't seen Eric yet today. Uh, and uh, Jen looks like she's able to get on board. We see Cookie. So all of you, thanks for joining us. Thanks for sticking with us through our technical and also, I don't know, environmental challenges. What else would you call that? There's no other way to describe it, right? Okay. A coincidence. So my two guests, uh, no, no introduction necessarily required, but we will give it to you anyway. This is George Hill, uh, famous Baldman, as we discussed, and Garrett O'Boyle, famous Beardman now. Both uh, congressional testifiers, they are both FBI whistleblowers, one retired, one suspended forever with no paycheck. And uh, these gentlemen have decided to join me because we had some very interesting dinner conversation last night over beer and some burgers. Um, we went on a hunt for, what were we hunting for? You were looking for key lime pie. I was looking for key lime pie. We were in South Florida. So we went and did that. And then uh, after that, we had, had this breakfast this morning. And at breakfast, we had a discussion about the backswing in this country. And these are two gentlemen who served in the military. Um, you know, George served for longer than both of us. Uh, they both have faced live fire in uh, combat. They've both been downrange and served America against her enemies. So what we're going to talk about is a nation full of men who have seen conflict in a real way and our willingness and, and many people's willingness to avoid that violence at all costs on our soil. I think there's a real serious problem that uh, certain members of the left are pushing an envelope that once it is opened, it cannot be closed. Um, but I'm going to let these guys kind of take it away here. I'm kind of just going to facilitate if that's good with you all. 
And, um, oh, Eric's flying the chopper. Someone just let me know that Eric, Eric has left his wheelchair and decided he's in Florida anyway. So he has left the wheelchair and he is now flying the helicopter to interrupt the show. He wanted to make a cameo. <laughs> okay. Uh, gentlemen, first of all, thanks so much for sitting. Thanks for giving me up your, your morning with me. Yeah. And thanks for having coffee with me this morning because I feel like we had some insights there. That was a of good course. breakfast. Yeah. Breaking bread together is, I think, an important facet of life and building relationships with people who are close to you. So. Uh, yeah, it's good to all be together in person and be able to do something like that and get deep into some of these topics in person. So Marie wants to know where we are. Do you guys want to tell people where you're at? Uh, it's uh, it's an undisclosed location. That's not how we operate here. No. We are transparent. We, we are in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Beautiful South Florida. Yeah, no, it's it's gorgeous. I mean, for, for Florida in June, um, not even going to go above 85 today, not crushing humidity. Um, yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Other than, you know, helos and leaf blowers. Yeah. yeah. The great free state of Florida. Um, I feel like it's calling my name, but, uh, maybe that's just because it's been pretty good weather since I've been here. This is, this is a Wisconsin boy telling you that, uh, that it being anywhere near the beach is nice. He's correct. It is nice to be near a beach. There's no question about that. But, yeah. uh, I think you're, you've just been in the tundra for so long. This is true. And you've been in, what do you, you, you call it Nineveh. Nineveh. Tell people about yes. what, what your, uh, intermittent state is. We didn't really get personal, uh, yeah. and, and kind of like. Your, your inner feelings on all this stuff. Right. But I, I know you guys have very difficult feelings about kind of what we've been facing down yeah, and it's obviously sure. led to this conversation. For sure. So for me, um, I think most of you know uh, a little bit about my backstory, especially if you caught the episode on Monday, I think it was. Wow, this week is all blending together. But um, shortly after we were able to retrieve our goods and kind of settle into a rental home in Wisconsin, uh, I had this idea to start a Substack because as a suspended employee of the FBI with no pay and no duty and no ability to get outside employment and kind of just praying and hoping for the best and trying to figure out this new life with a new baby and three other daughters and now not going to work and all this, I, I needed uh, some type of outlet. Granted, it's you know friends and family who read my Substack and, for the most part, but I, I had this idea, I was studying uh, I, I, had, I don't even know how I first came across it, but I listened to a couple sermons on the book of Jonah and I had this idea like, oh man, Wisconsin has become like my Nineveh. And I would say that to uh, friends and family back home to the point where my wife Heidi, got, she started saying, Jared, you got to stop. Like they're, they're taking that personally. You're going to offend them. They wanted us to come back home. You're talking um, about family members. Being yeah. Offended. Yep. And I was like, well, I'm not saying it like to be offensive. I'm saying it more like God called us back here for a purpose. And I don't know all the ins and outs of that purpose yet. But if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, he tried to flee to Tarshish and uh, because the Lord was calling him to Nineveh, but he didn't want to go to Nineveh. He wanted Nineveh to burn. And um, I'm not saying I want Wisconsin to burn or anything like that. <laughs> that um, because this analogy... The analogy is more than just the physical location, but it's it's everything that went into it with the suspension and um, you know, losing a job, essentially, and not having a mission, really, other than just to focus on my family, which even that has been difficult without uh, having the ability to provide. So I started off this Substack with these two pieces about like our life, and I, I call it um, Welcome to Nineveh. And... I've been meaning to circle back for many months because I probably have two or three left uh, in my mind, uh, but it's been difficult because I've been like Jonah holding on to my own anger and bitterness and uh, 
you know, I thought I was getting to a point where I was overcoming that er earlier, much earlier in this process. But what is your Substack called? I know people are starting to fill up your your yeah. request for that, and then there's some legal reasons why he's got it kind of locked down. But folks, if you're in the chat in there and you want to request it, you can. Yeah, it's a uh, lastline.substack.com. Lastline.substack.com, and uh, those of you who are familiar with uh, Garrett's shirts, he's wearing one right now. Boom, there it is. The last line, uh, last line strength, last line substack. What does the last line mean? And then we're going to move over to George since he he flew down here from the other tundra. Yeah. Uh, so this last line idea uh, I had, it started when I was a cop again, and back then it was more like focused on police and my military background and being uh, mentally, physically, and spiritually strong, and um, and so I, I had this idea like, oh, yeah, maybe I'll just start uh, some T-shirts and, and hopefully expand someday into opening a gym. Or it, it's, it's, it's morphed a lot because now I'm writing and it's taken on a very different tune than I first imagined. Um, but short, while I was in the middle of the hiring process with the FBI is when I started this thing. And um, it kind of trickled off because the hiring process picked up and then I'm off to Quantico, I'm moving and, but it's always been in the back of my mind, like I got to circle back and, and bring this to life. And so I, I guess I am in a different way with the sub stack and we'll see where it goes from there. You know, as it's morphed in kind of a brief way, what would you, what would you synthesize that the last line is? So it's, it's anyone and everyone who wants, who has the, has made the choice or has been placed in a, on a path where they must step into the breach, they must stand firm, they must hold the line. And that's really the nuts and bolts of, of what the last line is. It doesn't have to be law enforcement or military. It's, it's anyone and everyone who wants to uplift each other and build a community of people who they can trust and who want to do what's right for this nation. That's very sobering. George, um, I said that when we first met that I was had on a countdown to see how fast it would be for me to give you a hard time and for you to tell me to go F myself. <laughs> that was only like in the first 20 or 30 minutes that you and I have physically met for the first time. Oh, yeah. You... <laughs> <laughs> and it's because I called you persnickety of all things, which I think is a pretty silly <laughs> insult. This observation, no, not, not correct. <laughs> not, not even a little bit persnickety. Clearly not. Uh, you're down here in Florida. Uh, you're down here to be part of a panel discussion that you and I are going to be doing. And what, what, like you travel around the world just a little bit right now, you're, you're seeing different things. What, what is your sense of what's going on in this country since some of these allegations that we've been making about the federal government have been coming forward? Do you, do you see any movement? I, I think there's a lot of things going on. Um, number one, I think there is a, a growing number of people uh, that are, are pushing back regarding the intrusion into their way that they raise their families uh, that used to be. Uh, an area that was sacrosanct. You you never, ever, at least when I was growing up, and I'm older than these two gentlemen, um, you never criticized how someone was raising uh, their children. You might talk about it in, in, in within your own household, uh, but, but that was an area that you just did not go. Um, and I, I think that we're seeing people's, thankfully, I mean, there's an upside and a downside to everything. COVID and the shutdown of the schools gave a lot of parents some insight as to the shenanigans that was going on uh, in the public school system. Um, just a brief aside, if, if, if you want to end that, the only way to do that is with where the money follows the child and school choice, but that's a subject for another time. Um, so we see that developing, while at the same time, we see no effort at all on recalibrating from the, the left recalibrating their efforts to further push forward their progressive agenda. 
and intrude into the personal lives of mothers and fathers um, and, and families and, and telling people how they think they should live their lives. So what I'm seeing is kind of like when a, a cold front moves in and, and pushes a, a stagnant, you know, warm air mass out that storm clouds are, are building and on both sides, because we no longer have per political differences around the edges. What we have today is, is very basic core differences in values and principles between two, I think, large groups of people, one of whom has been largely silent. They just want to raise their family, go to work, pay their taxes, go to the soccer games with their children, join a scout troop, join a church. They just want to be left alone. And the progressive left will not leave you alone. They will not allow it to happen. And they have redoubled their efforts. Go Not to go too deeply into politics, but Biden administration is, is deep in the, the hole in terms of approval ratings. But you see no concern from them at all regarding the upcoming election, which gives me great concern. Why do they have no concern? Why do they have, they're not the least bit worried about these, these vast differences that are taking place uh, in our society? We have two separate camps. So I want to dig deeper into the, the fact that there's no concern, because I think you have some interesting insight on that. But I also want to touch on the beginning of what you just said, which there's been some allegations made. I've had people bring it to my attention, and, and I have a strong reflection on it. Garrett and I talked about it last night, actually, that this steady march forward by the progressive left is religious in nature. It has the characterization of religious extremism more than it does a political movement. Does that make sense to you from what you've seen? Well, absolutely. I, it, one doesn't have to go too far back in history. Just look at the Soviet Union, who a lot of people didn't even know existed, um, but their nation is their god. Um, they replace the uppercase G with a lowercase G, which is government. And remember what Hillary Clinton has said, what Barack Obama said, that we all belong to government, that they're not your children, they're, they're our children, it takes a village. These are, these are not semantics. These are not just slight differences in the use of the English language. These are strong, clearly different moral points of, of view. Uh, can, I, can I talk about that for? for you can. I, I just want to say, uh, Joe in the chat let wants you to know that he doesn't want to pay his taxes. You mentioned people want to go to soccer games and pay their taxes and do their civic duties, and there are some people in this country that have no interest in paying those taxes. I just want to assert that. Yeah. I also feel strongly every time that, in fact, right now we are looking at a way to uh, appropriately because I may have to pull back and have Garrett shred the check that I mailed him um, because we we want to set up a quarter of a million dollars, which will be life-changing for him and for Marcus Allen. And I immediately had a, a flurry of you let me know that there's a significant danger in cutting somebody a check for $250,000, even though it wasn't my money to begin with, because it came in and I am now an aggregator and sending it over, it will look like a, a gift that I'm giving directly from myself. And that would make it a taxable gift, which is incredibly dangerous and scary because the government wants $80,000 per check that I would write to these guys. Um, I don't know. I, I don't want to pay my taxes that much either. I'm not I'm not a huge fan of the government coming in and dipping 30% or 35% of something that literally wasn't mine 15 seconds ago, and I never considered it to be mine. But on paper, it may not be a clean pass-through for them. So anyway, just so you all know, I will always be transparent. I'll let you know how we figure it out. If it means that we have to buy the O'Boyle family a house and uh, 
you know, and then we just happen to be people that are investors in his future, then that's okay too. Like there's a lot of different options, but I'm looking through some, some accounting uh, options to, to solve this problem simply because as much as we used to be okay with the idea of paying taxes, now we're paying essentially for tyranny. Many of us are paying for the mechanisms of tyranny that are coming at us. Garrett, you wanted to weigh in yeah. on this, on this I'll touch on this first because tyranny has been a big aspect of, um, I guess, a lot of my thought process really since I think since I joined the Army, and it, it was probably one of the driving factors, and that has shifted over time as well because now instead of looking at well, maybe back then in my ideological foolishness as a teenager joining the military, I thought it's the, tyr the outside tyranny of other people who want to change America or attack America or oppress Americans for how we think. Now I, I look more uh, centric at our own government and think it is way off the rails with the administrative state uh, and in the way it is run. It is run, and um, so the definition of the the text, the uh, dictionary definition of tyranny is an arbitrary use or an, an arbitrary use of uh, or unrestricted use of power. And when you look at just the, the actual definition, because people will scoff at the word tyranny, like, oh, that's extreme. When we break down the word and we look at the definition of it, it really isn't all that extreme because, um, you know, I think of Steve's book and the redactions that they had, like 30 pages or whatever of redactions. That is an unrestrained abuse of authority right there because they don't want him to exercise his First Amendment right about the things he saw inside the FBI that were wrong. And we can, you know, put that out to the give, send, go and the potential tax burden uh, that we might see on there. But another aspect of it, as we, you know, are in this new role of being the suspendables, is we have been patient for many, many months. This is one thing we used to talk about a lot before uh, the, the hearing and the many months leading up to it, uh, many times thinking it may not ever even happen, uh, was when and if I should come and speak out publicly. And I didn't, and I never did. Um, until after that hearing. And it's another aspect where it's like, we can be patient. Um, we, you know, it's a, we have a finite life, but for now, patience and prudence and discretion and discernment have to be a major part of how we go forward because we know we're being watched. We know they are trying to find any and every reason they can to hit us with a tax penalty or some, you know, Possibly a Coast Guard helicopter coming down uh, over our position. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see a 240 out the window, so I, I wasn't, didn't feel too threatened. <laughs> there was a guy, uh, there was like a flight yeah. engineer yeah. that was hanging out. Oh, I didn't see, yeah, but, yeah, but no M240. Correct, no, yeah, I'm no good. gunner. Just, a, just a, a flight engineer doing what he does, probably looking for hoists, or maybe he was going to come and drop us a, a way out. Yeah. Maybe he thought the hey, guys, was on fire. Total coincidence. Take the rope. Total coincidence. When we started, and it stopped when we moved. Absolute coincidence. I'm sure there's nothing to it. Well, interesting enough, we can't believe in coincidences in the roles that we're in right now. It doesn't make sense for us to walk around and not have our head on a swivel. Um, many people in America are feeling the same way. They feel like they are being watched in certain ways because of the sort of surveillance that the government has created, which was not a thing when you were a child and really not a thing when I was a child. But we've all grown to expect that any phone call could be listened to that any text message could be intercepted, that uh, any device you have that's made out of electronics could in fact be compromised at any moment. And the capabilities for that sort of thing do exist clearly. And we've uh, used them in different ways um, in our professional careers. And now you look at it personally, the funny experience that we had the other, yesterday, yeah. I'll let Garrett kind of tell the story of it, but um, you, you never know if you're seeing what we, what we call in the surveillance world, if you're seeing ghosts because of how strange 
the the internal situation is, how strange our personal situations are. Now we're looking back at our former employer and being like, hey, are they uh, are they following yeah. us around? Yeah, so uh, we're walking back uh, from dinner last night and George and Kyle are in front of me, uh, you know, uh, shoulder width apart, just next to each other. I'm right behind, you know, picking up the rear. And as we're walking towards the hotel, there's, you know, foot traffic coming towards us. And uh, there's, there's a, you know, a, a cleanly dressed guy uh, walking our way, has his phone out, and he, let's see. What, yeah, let's, let's describe him very clearly. He was wearing some kind of slacks with a belt, a tucked in shirt. It was a dress shirt that was buttoned down. It was pink. If that's you, uh, Miami SSG, we saw you. You're not very good. Um, if it wasn't, then we're seeing ghosts even weirder. Yeah. Could have been just some random dude. But show, show them how yep. he was carrying this. So, this one? So as he's, oh, yeah, this one. As, as he's walking towards us, he has his phone about gay high and has it canted like this, which uh, not reading it. Kyle was, you know, an operational uh, surveillance guy, went through the FBI's uh, surveillance course. I also went through that course. And so you're trained on a not to do this thing and how to act normal and not weird. Um, we're human, so we don't always get it right. And so I see this and I thought, oh, that guy's probably, you know, a, a part of a surveillance team. It, it's what we call surreptitious photography. And there's an entire technique on how to do it. The way you would actually do this properly is if you were going to videotape, for example, you folks, you might walk by like this and you might be kind of just filming it, kind of turning around and kind of, yep, yeah, uh-huh, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, no, 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 we'll have to meet later on. And then you walk by, you do it naturally and not act like a weirdo. But when you are working for the FBI, weirdo is probably one of your default positions. There's a lot of nerdy weirdo people uh, let, let's pivot directly over. George spent a bunch of time at the FBI Academy and you were seeing this recruiting. You, tell me why you went down there because I don't know if we've covered that on a podcast before, but you and I've had personal conversations a couple of times about it. So sadly, Kyle and I did a, a, a podcast on the 10th anniversary of the Boston marathons and we had some technical difficulties and lost unfortunately to humanity forever. But when the bomb went off on Boylston Street, I was at CENTCOM for a war game, and I came back on the first plane the day after. So I was in Boston about 12 hours after, a little bit more than 12 hours after the bomb went off. And when I walked into the command post, I expected to see what we had war gamed uh, with CERG, uh, Critical Incident Response Group, just a few months prior. Instead, what I walked into was the barroom fight scene out of Blazing Saddles. And... During the course of the investigation and the manhunt, this is all before the task force took effect and people went out about doing their regular assigned task. I learned so much about my colleagues, people, men and women who I held in high regard, found out that they totally wet the bed uh, when things went south. And then other people who were very quiet, uh, who went about their job with no pretense, uh, just rose to the occasion quietly and professionally and performed their job. And there's a, you get a workforce two ways that they're both related is your hiring practice and your training practice. So I'm very familiar with the hiring practice of the Bureau. So I wanted to go to Quantico and just see how these men and women are, are made. And I had an opportunity to get down for almost uh, four or five months as a field counselor, met some really great people. We're, we're friends to this day. And this was six, seven years ago. And I wanted to see how they're made. And a friend, I, I became friends with the, the chief physician down at Quantico. We were both at Navy Expeditionary Combat Command together, although we served in different times in different theaters. And he was primarily a surgeon to the Special Operations Committee. So that was his optic um, as a naval uh, surgeon. 
uh, was a special operations. And he commented to me, having been at Quantico now for a few years, mind you now, this is six, seven years ago, that the average age, and I'm going to botch the numbers, I don't remember the conversation, but the average age of the FBI new applicant for agent has dropped about five years. And for his words, not mine, the maturity level has dropped by about. But that was his observation. A, a, a surgeon, man who came out of the special operations community, not as an operator, but if you've ever been in the special operations community, there's a vibe to it. There's a sense of professionalism to it. You would quickly recognize. And I had to see where this was happening. And he was spot on, spot on. And I was just, uh, it, it became crystal clear to me why people behaved like they did uh, on April 16th of, of 2013. So they weren't prepared to take on some of these, um, they weren't prepared to take on these challenges because they weren't minted in an environment that knew how to handle stress, that had a blueprint for handle stress. We used to call it stress inoculation when I was going through training. They put you under artificial stress so that you learn that when you have real stress, you can operate in the same manner. You fall back to the level of your training as they often do. Um, that's, that's not who we're training right now at the FBI Academy. That's not what we're bringing out. And you also saw one of the first classes, I think mine was very early on, if not the earliest, of the integration of the agent yes. and the uh, and the IA role. Right. Now, you supervised IAs. Yeah. You worked alongside of super, uh, special agents. Did you, was there any feedback from the field immediately that like this was a great thing, that this was a good idea, that they were doing this and it made sense? Or was it something that you had some concerns about while you were there? My concerns started before I went there. Okay. When Comey came over and took over uh, as director of the FBI, he instituted what the communists call struggle sessions. And he made it mandatory that every SSA, supervisory special agent, and every supervisory intelligence analyst had to go through this, I'll use the communist term, struggle sessions, but it was basically familiarizing yourself through online courses, because that's the best way to learn from the FBI. Of each job series. And then we had to go out to California for three days of punishment in these large group settings. And we had these role plays and presentations, things of that nature. And it was clear from that point forward, this is the Kool-Aid. You will drink it. You will smile and say that it's good. And that is important because when you have the whole TRP process, the, the total resource uh, threat response program, um, that everybody say the same thing. So critical thinking, dissenting thoughts, not allowed. The, the entire process is geared essentially to break down opposition, to break down what I think the Durham report referred to as rigorous analytical thinking which is exactly the reason why Marcus Allen was suspended, right? I mean, that was sort of the, that was the flaw right. that he exposed was that he was trying to think rigorously and present all sides of the analysis. And when you do that, that's how you get canceled in the FBI right now because it is a culture of homogeneity, of defend the badge, of we are all marching forward in the same line. So uh, real brief, so I came to the Bureau from the National Security Agency. I remember going to one of my first interagency conferences regarding a matter that's not suitable for discussion. And I was throwing out challenges to some of the assessments that are being, were being made by OGA, other government agency, 
and some other FBI folks, and I was quickly pulled into the ASAC office, assistant special agent in charge. Oh, I've never heard people talk to other you know partners like that. And I said, well, this is how the of a tr intelligence professional conducts themselves. They challenge assessments, they challenge assertions, they challenge hypotheses to make sure that they're solid. It's it's part of the analytic rigor that one is supposed to apply from the very onset of things, but that is not acceptable. You here's the click, click, click like the conductor, hands go up, everybody hits the same tune at the same time, same note at the same time. Right. Um, Garrett, now when you were going through, you went through the academy a couple years after I did, yep. but still, still in IAs, yep. right? Still IAs being there. Yep. So, so you had analysts there. What was the, explain, explain what the culture looks like when agents who are supposed to carry a gun, who are supposed to know how to get rough with people who have a physical requirement, interact with the opposite side of the coin, which is the analytical, the indoor part, you know, indoor and outdoor dogs. It was uh, an interesting amalgamation because the first couple weeks, maybe, I don't know how many, maybe like the first six, we were we literally did everything together. And then we were still integrated, but agents started, well, we both, we started breaking off and doing different things where we're going to shoot or we're going to, I don't know, defensive driving. tactics or yeah. Def, yeah, driving defensive tactics where then analysts are going and learning more of their niche role. And then after a few weeks of that, like when we would come back together, it was getting increasingly rarer and rarer leading up to the IA's graduation. Um, it seemed like there was already like a, a rift just because we hadn't been together much. It's a kind of a power dynamic too, it feels like, right? Yeah. Because they've presented you as being equals in the role. No, this is the way we have different it. roles. Yeah. So in the military, I don't feel like there's nearly as much of a uh, separation between intel and operations because they can be actually enmeshed because intel drives what the operations are. And there's always going to be sort of the, you know, the meathead versus, uh, uh, you know, egghead sort of mentality, right? Like that's, that's a natural struggle. Uh, George is nodding. George spent a lot of time in that thing. But there's a lot more chance for people who are in the, in the intelligence end to be part of operations to the point of legitimately embedding because they can still carry a weapon. They still have right. the basic training that goes yeah. along with it. They may not be the pipe hitting guy that, uh, you know, goes and breaches doors every day, but you still might want to bring an Intel guy for what they right. call sensitive site exploitation yeah. and so on. The, the rift between that and what happens in the Bureau, which is a far more, con I would say a far more, um, what is the word? A permissive environment in the United States. It's not very dangerous in general. We act like they can't be outdoors. For, for some reasons, and then you build up this culture of people that are literally scared of their own shadow and stay inside. Yeah. Well, that, I think that even happens to agents uh, because of what we do in Hogan's Alley. But with the IA integration, a lot of it is so different in, in Quantico than it was in real life because they acted like, like they would have your IA in training, come up with questions, come up with an Intel product on the, the, you know, the big capstone case that the whole class is working on the whole time. And, um, then they act, they would act like the IA would go on an interview with you. That never ever. I know what happens occasionally. Never ever happened in real life, in my experience. Right. Not once. Not one time. Well, and there's a big difference between someone like the IAs that I worked with, for the most part, who were not physically fit, who didn't have a sense of um, what an external threat looked like, who you know was worried about ninjas around every corner, or they were so they were so out to lunch that they couldn't actually represent that the human being in front of us may be a threat. And someone like George, George who spent tons of time both downrange yeah. and domestically involved in you know, actual mm -hmm. legitimate um, interrogations has significant training yeah. that we've talked about offline and a lot. And, and 
and and I think that's some of the formative stuff in your in your life experience to be engaging human beings at a very high level it's a chess game inside each other's minds where you can only get so physical but you have to let them know that there is no limit right exhausting you're doing it right it's exhausting yeah sure and sure and to be able to have people that have that background which you which you have but it's not necessarily common because people like jim comey were now recruiting people who didn't have your background who had 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 a collegiate background only i'm going somewhere with this yeah yeah. no please no No, i want you to weigh in right now because i'm going to eventually get to where we're going to go can I jump in per se? Yeah, oh. but I want to hear what George was about to say. So oh, I was it. Oh, I didn't. Know. So at, when I was a field counselor, I had the opportunity to meet uh, with Director Comey, a, a private luncheon with the other field counselors, Comey and his posse. And I had said, you know, Director, after 15 years of war in two theaters and thousands of intelligence professionals that had been trained at either at Fort Huachuca or the MITSI Navy Marine Corps Intelligence Training Center, um, we should take a look at way, you know, at least putting aside the requirement for a four-year degree because we have literally tens of thousands of, of trained professionals who have operated in a high-speed, demanding environment, a team environment. And can we at least look at shunting for at least a couple of years during the course of their bureau career of requiring a bachelor's degree and his posse jumped on me and ripped me to shreds like a pack of jackals. What was their what was their complaint specifically? Do you remember any of those things? Obviously they were attacking him, but do you remember any of the you know, was there any picture? I just it became very quickly like a family guy episode, blah, 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 <laughs> blah, blah, blah. I I it's like, okay, fine. I got it. Kill me, kill the message. We're done here. I learned so much as a field counselor as to why we're in the position that we're in, um, it was priceless. Jared, did you want to make a point real quick about yeah. uh, two? Uh, one, that when I was in Quantico, there were some of the IA uh, group who I think are probably doing an absolutely t- fantastic job uh, because they had the mindset, a different mindset than a lot of the IA types that we might see, where they want to go out and get after it. And I think that's great. And then what you just talked about with bringing that stuff up with Comey's posse, I think goes to the heart of the matter with, with the FBI, at least for me, I've been talking about it a lot since I've been public, is boils down to hubris. They don't want to hear questions and comments like you made, and then they will attack you because it's contrary to their fake belief that they have always done everything perfectly and always will. Because it's an institution of humans, and it, humans are fallible. And the FBI is fallible, and they are proving it time and time again. The Bureau is more interested in protecting its brand and its, its badge that it is, in fact, this elite organization than actually being an elite organization. And one of the hallmarks of truly elite organizations is constant self-criticism, constant look for failure, and attempting to improve. And what the Bureau is trying to do is improve image without the actual performance to back it up. It was nothing more funny to me than when we were there, and they kept saying things like, you know, this is the premier law enforcement agency in the world. And it's like, you could say that all day long, but the more you say it, the more you cheapen it. In fact, I would argue and I would advocate any of you that are involved in law enforcement that happen to listen to our podcast, if you are in a state or a local entity that does law enforcement, I would encourage you to always introduce your agency, particularly when you talk to the feds, as the premier law enforcement agency in the world, because it's an absurd claim on its face. And if you can make absurd claims with no need to back them up, which the Bureau does regularly, then uh, why shouldn't you? It's, uh, if everyone's going to be, it's the whole idea that if everybody is special, then no one is special. We talked about the beret, um, 
sort of yeah. culture that happened in the military. For those of you who don't know, initially the people that wore berets were people like the Green Berets, which you're familiar with, uh, which is going to be your special forces. We had special operations guys in general, which was your, your 75th Ranger Regiment, and they all wore a beret. That's on the Army side. And on the, on the Air Force side, I, I don't know if the Navy does a beret. I'm pretty confident they do not. But the, uh, on the Air Force side, we had guys that were in the combat control professions, people that were like pararescue men. These are elite operators as well. And they would wear a special hat that would insinuate or show people visually, and the military is all about visuals, that they were a different type of person. They were a different type of troop. And then everybody who was in the regular troop thing started getting jealous. And that's why security forces, which is the largest part of the Air Force, they all wear a beret. They actually took the color and the uh, and the style from combat control. So combat control went to another color. Um, I know that now the army all has black. And so these are these, like if everybody needs to be getting a trophy, if everybody needs to feel special, then nobody is special. You cheapen those words simply by trying to universalize it. And, and, and all of this goes to the point that we're now living in a country where everybody wants to be the thing. They want to be special. They all want to be included. We all need to be gentle and we have to accept all of their foibles and weirdnesses. When, when I was growing up, if you were a weirdo, you were just a weirdo. Like if you wanted to put on women's clothing and you were a dude, we just called you a weirdo. Like it didn't mean you were a bad person. You might be really nice, but like, hey, uh, you know, when he goes home, he puts on heels. Yeah, you were quirky. Quirky, weird. Uh, you know, they were, they were, it was always comedic. It was almost always funny. And everyone sort of knew that. Drag was not a thing that was regularized. It was, it was used either in comedy uh, and to, to great effect. It was used in entertainment purposes to, to highlight certain things, but it was always woman face. Everyone knew it was a man impersonating a woman, and there's an inherent sort of comedy about that because we can't do it, at least not well. I think, too, like along that point, it's, I think it could very well be a driving factor in some of the things we see today where the rise in, in suicide, the rise in homosexuality and transgenderism, it's part of that egoism that humans naturally have because we're sinful beings where everyone is special now everyone gets a beret everyone gets a trophy so what can i do to stand out and actually be special oh i know now i'm trans or or whatever the case may be right you have to get well it's the funniest thing about to me about identity politics which i abhor the minute you get down to the most granular identity that you have and you are now a cisgendered, you know, white heterosexual male, uh, you know, with ADD, and they list out all your disabilities and all of your things, you know, receding hairline and big bubbly <laughs> beard, like all the things. You get down to the level of individualism, and then you're right back where I am, which is that I treat everybody as an individual. And if you're a human being that sucks, I just call you someone who sucks. And if you don't, then you're somebody else. Um, to, to kind of pivot to the indoor outdoor dog thing we were talking about, this analyst position versus the people who have actual physical experience. The breakfast conversation we had, which is where the backswing that we wanted to talk about comes from. People who have never seen what violence looks like, people who have never seen what discomfort and civil unrest and what it can do to a country when it's destabilized are the ones aggressively advocating for this position. And they seem to be poking the bear. There's a great meme. It's like two guys wearing FBI hats and uh, they're poking like a Pepe frog and they're like, come on, come on, you know, do a terrorism, you know? And, and everybody sort of has that sense that they're being goaded into something that they know what it is and they're avoiding it on purpose. George, you, you've been downrange. I know that uh, Garrett, you've done the same thing. You guys have gone on the two-way shooting rages, we call it sometimes, where if you're, you're sending rounds back at the things that are coming, you know, bullets are flying in both directions and everybody has a live target. When that is the case, uh, I imagine it's not a thing that you wanted to bring home with you. You weren't like, oh, this is amazing. Like, let's have this come to America. I think the majority of people, and myself included, 
went and did that because we wanted to keep it there mm -hmm. somewhere else, not here. Because why would you ever want that in your own country? Where your children are. Right. Yeah, meek and weak are not synonyms. When they say the meek shall inherit the earth, what they're talking about is people of tremendous strength that have control right. over that strength. And the government and this progressive movement keeps on pushing on meek people, and they're misinterpreting meekness for weakness. And they really need to stop because they're creating a self-fulfilling prophecy um, with these threats that they seem to be pulling out of thin air. They're not pulling them out of thin air. Their policies are creating them just because they keep on pushing. It's, it's going to happen. This reminds me of a quote you just said about meekness, not weakness from Jordan Peterson it says, harmless man is not a good man. A good man is a very, very dangerous man who has it under voluntary control. And I think that that comment is so intuitive and especially of our war generation starting in 2001 and the present, there's a lot of men and women even in this country who have done the hard thing because they didn't want it to come here, right. and they're getting that poke. And then uh, another one from him, I think that rings true as well, is if you think tough men are dangerous, wait until you see what weak men are capable of. And I think that's what we are seeing from our government today. So early, we were trying to get into a quick discussion about the ordinary men that, uh, what was the name of the police battalion, 105? Uh, uh, it's the um, Reserve Police Battalion 101. There's 101. A, there's a Polish uh, reserve police unit uh, in the World War II era. and title of the book says it all, Ordinary Men. Um, they were butchers and carpenters and whatever else that they did, and then they were mobilized and activated in World War II, and um, in short order, were slaughtering Jews, you know, full tilt. And it's, it's extra poignant for people with a law enforcement and military background like we all have, uh, because we see the depravity of man and what man can be capable of, even when they're just simply ordered do something because that's what it boiled down to for that unit and many others in world war ii was while well, i was ordered to, to do this right and we've seen a lot of people in the bureau sort of keep those orders i know a lot of police officers must struggle with that and many of them have fallen on the wrong side where they are saying uh you know i'm i'm told to shut down this restaurant because of covid policies and they know inherently that telling someone that they cannot make a living, that they cannot go to the job that they have to support their family is not a thing that they would willingly accept. If they were told to stay home, they might still police the streets because they know it needs to be done. Right. And, and yet, a lot of people, more and more, are following that route. Uh, I like the, uh, when, I was, when I was in the military, my, my, uh, one of my team sergeants, who's a really good guy, he's a special operator, would always say, never mistake my kindness for weakness as a, as a leader. This is a very common experience yeah. that we hear. I had a guy in the Army who said the same thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's ubiquitous. I feel like almost all Marines, almost all Army guys, they understand that there is the kindness for weakness problem. The weakness and meekness issue is someone who has tremendous capabilities. They bring the ability to, to, to mete out violence, but they have the humility to know that it is not appropriate. It is not the tool. We talk about flipping the switch sometimes in the communities where guys have the ability to go from Every day, laughable, we had a nice breakfast, we're drinking coffee, we're smoking and joking, we're talking about our kids, we're showing photos. If somebody came through that door and pointed an AK at the, at the receptionist of the hotel and said, we're taking over this building, it's time to start ending people's lives. We have to do it aggressively, we have to do it violently, and it's no more fun time, and no, we may not walk out of it okay. Right. But that's, that's something you accept as somebody who has that skill set. Um, it's the same, we were, folks, we were kind of laughing about this this morning. 
Garrett's beard is, is kind of wooly and, and powerful. And uh, I found a, a shirt in Texas, which I got to find for him. We might make a Suspendables version of it. But it says, with great beard comes great responsibility. And we all sort of know that. When you have these powers, when you are able to inflict violence, then your job is to not inflict violence. Um, that is until why, it's time. Until it's time. Yeah. It's not. It, it's, you, you remember the movie uh, Roadhouse? Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. So one of the reasons why that movie was so great is because Patrick Swayze's character, who was capable of tremendous violence and was able to fight at a high level, chose not to until it was necessary for him to do so. And so when Patrick Swayze's character, you know, he says, if they come in the bar and they want to get rowdy, we ask them to sit down and we'd be nice. He says, if they come out and they want to, you know, do things, we buy them a drink. We tell them to take it easy, take a load off. We do it nicely. We do all these things. We keep doing nice. He said, I want you to be nice until it's time to not be nice. And that's one of the great lines coming out of the 80s and an understanding that having that tremendous strength, having the nuclear arsenal that we had, because these are a lot of them are products of that Cold War mentality, that Cold War mentality, rather. We knew instinctively that you have this thing, you could do this thing, but if we do it, mutually assured destruction was a real concept. I grew up knowing it. I know you did. I know you actually lived in an operational document. No, we came close to it. And, and when you have that sort of attitude, you avoid it at all costs on purpose because the alternative is that everybody is involved in total war. Uh, and unfortunately right now, it feels like this country is aggressively pushing political left specifically, these indoor types that think that they are on the same capabilities and par of real men and women who know what violence really looks like. And they're gonna to try to push them up to the brink because they think it serves their purposes. Right. And, and that to me is terrifying because we, we did this once before in the early 90s. We saw the Ruby Ridge, we saw the Timothy McVeigh's. They were fringe at the time, right. right? But in many ways, those guys looked up and they saw the same things we're seeing in much smaller ways and it caused them to act. And I don't condone any of it. I think Timothy McVeigh was a monster. He killed children. And yet, the sentiment that he had is building more sympathy uh, in the same way that people who go back and read the Unabomber's Manifesto today. And I don't know if you've ever read uh, Tim Kaczynski's, Ted. Ted Kaczynski, yeah, Uncle Ted. And the there's actually one that says Uncle Ted's cabin established, like whatever, whatever they took it down. I mean, I remember him going uh, and being arrested and thinking like, oh my God, look at this guy. Like he was a monster. He was mailing package bombs. But then you go back and read why he was and you go, okay, he was a monster. He had terrible ideas and he enacted them in a bad way. And obviously he hurt people that were unrelated. I mean, it was a totally diseased mind action. And yet the problems that he saw and that he was trying to address were real. He just didn't understand how to handle it because he was an analytical type and you know, he basically veered off on a hard right on an, uh, you know, an exit ramp that nobody should exit off on. Uh, but his assessment of technology and the disconnect of human beings and all those things really were uh, almost prophetic, which is bizarre and, and fun to say as a former FBI agent. Can I bring this back to our discussion literally five minutes ago? Because we haven't Please. really moved that far from it. What we're talking about here is dissenting opinion, which should be always embraced. Yes. I was very sour on Edward Snowden when it first went south yep. and he went to Russia. Until I listened to him, I think for almost six hours on Joe Rogan. And it changed my thinking. And if, if you're going to insulate, if one is going to insulate themselves from contrary thought and insist, even through the use of, of governmental violence, live with inside of a hermetically sealed bubble, um, it's a formula for, for greater conflict. So I would argue that we're much better off listening to dissenting points of view, but like really listening, active listening skills, because it may mediate some of your thoughts, mitigate, you know, mediate, yeah, mediate some of your thoughts, 
as well as the person with whom you're having the exchange with. Um, but that is not allowed anymore. Right. So I, I engaged with a guy named David Weissman on Twitter the other day. And David Weissman's story apparently was that he was this like rabid pro-Trump guy. Um, he's Jewish. He was a veteran. He was a, ch uh, a chaplain's assistant in the army. So he's a military veteran. And um, I don't know enough about the chaplain's assistant's role on the army side, but I intend to ask him. And I just hit him up on Twitter and he was saying these things. And I was like, I vehemently disagree with almost everything you say, but you started in a place where you believed a lot of the same things that I did. And I was never a pro-Trump guy in a vehement way. Like I like Trump policies. Trump actually earned my vote between 2016 and 2020, which I think is an interesting thing for the suspendables. Like we were never like MAGA guys. I don't own a MAGA hat. I own a red hat because it triggers people. I think it's funny, but it has nothing on it. Uh, and I make it something in, you know, I, I wanted it to say make steak or make America steak again, because I really love steak. And I just think that's funny. And I making fun of vegans is a thing that I find amusing. Uh, if you're a vegan deal with it, like, I, I don't really care, you're allowed to not eat meat, I'm just going to eat two animals for everyone that you don't. And um, so this was kind of the mindset that I have. And then uh, I engaged him, I just said, Hey, would you be willing to sit down? And I was like, I don't agree with almost anything you say from what I can tell. But I'd love to know how you and I are seeing either different information and coming up with these different ideas, or we're seeing the same information and it's tilting you the opposite way that it tilts me. Because I want to know, like, why in the hell are you thinking like that? Yeah. And and let's have that interesting dialogue. And if it convinces people away from what I believe, fantastic. Like, I don't care. I want people to understand back up their opinions. But there's a small possibility we talk and we find common ground that we both want to see our children live successfully, that we want them to be unimpeded and be able to be raised in certain ways. I bet you there's more things that David and I agree on, even though politically and on Twitter, you know, he's out there like cheering on, you know, all the destruction of anything that is against his ideology. That seems to be this, this you cannot accept even a common ground with your enemy. Even, even in World War I, when we were dealing with some of the most obnoxious and disgusting forms of, tr of uh, trench warfare, yeah. the, you know, the men from Western cultures got together and celebrated Christmas in the middle of the no man's land. And right. that, to me, tells me that we have lost something because that was about as dehumanizing as a war as you can get. Yep. You were being shelled into oblivion by someone who you could physically eyeball and see, and they were dropping artillery on your heads. Yeah. And still... Those people knew that they were human beings who had families that were going to come and celebrate Christmas. There was a truce that was signed overnight. You can only imagine how intense that was, probably on the bodies of their friends that they were walking between to get there. And then they celebrated Christmas in different languages, and they went back, and they went back to war the next day. Dehumanizing is so dangerous. It, it really is. I mean, once human beings become something non-human, something that has to be slaughtered and moved out of your way, um, and, and there's history modern modern man history of man um is rife with you know thousands and thousands of examples of that um just because we're living today in the 21st century doesn't mean that we cannot get to dehumanization uh again i mean we're already seeing some of those kinds of things in north korea and china with the uyghurs and other parts of the world we're seeing human trafficking in, in numbers that we haven't seen uh since the british and the united states later on helped end the slave trade. Um, dehumanizing is a slippery slope. No question about it. Uh, my wife comes from a, a therapy background. And so she spent, you know, she has a master's degree in counseling. We talk a lot about that. I learned a lot of counseling speak, listening to her talk to her friends and some of these kind of conversations. Um, when there's three women counselors together that are clucking about whatever they cluck about. Uh, and my wife wouldn't take any umbrage with me saying it that way. I used to always walk in and go, what are you chickens clucking about? You know? <laughs> Just hyper alpha them. Uh, and they would always go like, you know, like they, they'd cluck about it. And then they go back to doing their thing. But one of the things that they discuss, and this is the term, it's called othering, which is a very leftist way of looking at it. It's a very gentle sort of soft way. But othering is to say, I am creating that divide, that rip, that dehumanization. Yeah. 
I'm making you an other. And the minute it becomes an other, now you're them. Mm-hmm. They are doing this. We are doing something different. And that wedge, that, di- that divided wedge creates opportunities for looking at the other as a real foe. Yeah. And once you other people, and we started doing that in this country in a big way. Yeah. What we did was, and, and you saw it through a lot of the COVID yes. stuff, they made people choose a side. Yep. And the side was, are you with us? Are you with them? And rather than saying, the way that we have always done in this country, you can have religious differences. You can agree not to do something that everybody else does. If you choose to do that, no big deal. You just, during this one part of the time, you do something different because you have an accommodation for it. But you know, and I know that they didn't allow that sort of thing. They didn't. Um, talk about what that looked like being on the inside. You were in a very different field office. I know you saw Boston. I'd love for you guys to kind of discuss the othering that happened, even within our agency as a microcosm. Yeah. Country. Well, and, and we, we touched on it, I think at dinner last night, or maybe it was breakfast, but um, with this country saw it happen in real time. We saw it happen. Now people, especially those who are really paying attention and looking back and seeing that things may have gotten a little bit back to normal, but we can never forget what those two or three years was like um, in this country. And it was worse elsewhere. Canada, it was worse. In Australia, New Zealand, it was worse. And that, that othering aspect that we saw from inside was, you must do what we say or else. And we were both recipients of that. and. In law enforcement, we talked about it, touched on it earlier. There's no coincidences. I don't think there are in life. And in law enforcement, I learned that quick. And then part of my faith really is, has helped what solidified that. And so when you see that othering happen inside the most powerful law enforcement agency in the world, that's a scary place to be because sure. inside the own agency, now you are one of the others because you didn't want to get a vaccine, you didn't want to attest, you didn't want to submit a religious accommodation because you shouldn't have had to because you do have a reasonable belief. I shouldn't have to write 15 pages about that as to why uh, you should let me live my life the way I want and not put an injection in me that I don't want to get or whatever else. And so you, it came to a point where the, the quote unquote rules literally were if you're not vaccinated, you must wear a mask. And so there's now your symbol of being another. Very everyone. Yeah, and people always said, oh, you know, you, you guys are drawing this really like stark parallel. You're trying to act like this is a, like the Holocaust. And, and the answer was always the same for me. You can tell me if you agree with this one, George. But um, I always said that we aren't being treated like the Jews in the Holocaust. Our government is beginning to act like the Nazis. And that should be terrifying because it didn't start with death camps. No. It never starts with death camps. No. It starts with dehumanizing. Yeah. And part of that wedge was wearing a mask, was you have to go and go uh, test for COVID every 72 hours and you're different and because upload. you're unclean right. and you've now basically created this thing where it's like, well, he's one of the guys that has to go and test yep. and now it's on everybody's timesheet. And so now the timekeepers who have never met, you know, one they thing know. about you, you're a non-compliant problem right. and I was a non-compliant problem. And so by being that person, you have created that other. And how many of those people do we know in just our small circle? Every single one just about was in that camp. Every single one of the whistleblowers that yep. we know of. Yep. So. Do they have a list with our names on it? Absolutely. Every single person in the FBI, roughly 3,000 of us, they have a list of our names because we were required to provide some information to them after the uh, executive order 14043 was signed on September 9th, 2021. And in short order, we did uh, provide that. We had to, and they had a list. And fast forward a year, and people started getting taken off that list because they were removed from the agency. And um, 
you know, pe people do always jump right to death camps. And, you know, 1945, when America discovered them and most of the world didn't know, only really at that point, only Germany knew. And then people were like, oh my gosh, this was a lot worse than we thought. But let's rewind because... Um, well, first of all, I want to hear what George saw in Boston because we had different field offices. I experienced something out of Albuquerque's. You experienced it out of Kansas City and you were in Boston, which is a very Catholic city in right. many ways. Yeah, no, I don't think that the point of view was that different in Boston, which is really, I think, the most distressing point is that the reaction across the Bureau and across the nation was homogenized. It was cl clear, clearly visible separation from the unclean and those who uh, were compliant. And it got to the point where those of us who didn't agree with some of the, the, the COVID policies would meet in we would instant message each other and then meet in some third party location. Yeah, we were, we were pushed to, underground, right? To, 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 to be able to discuss out loud, um, because even to, to voice a difference of opinion, if someone could hear it, you'd be up on the eighth floor explaining to your boss why you're not ascribing to this prescribed line of thinking. And so the, the wild thing for a lot of people, and one of the reasons why I came up with the group I did, which ended up being a group of a lot of them being whistleblowers, which is very strange. And I, when I've talked, people who have listened to me speak publicly, I say there's a couple hundred that were involved. We created a group, but it wasn't to whistleblow. It wasn't to go say that there were things going wrong in the FBI specific to the national standard. What we were talking about was, is that they were treating everybody wrong internally. And that led everybody to the natural outgrowth to look, what else are they screwing up? What else are they doing in this crazy way? But very effectively, they divided and conquered they made people feel like an island. And when you're, when you're an island, you basically have two options, maybe three. Uh, one of them is that you can submit to the authority, which was the goal. They wanted to show that you were completely outnumbered and that you had no other option other than to go forward and join the majority. And that was a strong peer pressure tactic. Many people submitted to that. The second thing is a lot of people left the FBI. So they drove out those that were not going to be complicit, that were not going to homogenize and be part of this sort of echo chamber. Any of that rigorous analytical thought that said, look, is there another way that we should be doing this? That got thrown out. And I think many of you experienced that in your jobs as well. It didn't happen in just the FBI. It didn't happen in just the federal government, which was the largest employer. They were actually aggressively applying the same sort of pressure tactics into private industry. And so we saw the same things happen in the transportation industry, in the medical field, especially in the medical field, a bunch of other places where they were trying to get um, homogenous thought and anybody that was a dissenting opinion was going to be pushed out. And a lot of those people with those dissenting opinions also turn out to be people who have a pretty good concept of what it looks like overseas to see violence. And so you've now marginalized and tried to other and dehumanize people who know what that looks like. And that is an incredibly scary, weird, you know, poke the frog moment where it's like, go on, do something, act out, and then we'll show you how aggressive it is. I think we talked about it, George, I'm going to throw it back over to you. Uh, Biden mentioned that you need F-15s in order to overthrow the government. Yeah, uh, I think I may misquote him. I'm sure somebody will correct me, probably not in the chat, but maybe from the White House. Um, you think you're going to take over the government with your AR-15s? Well, we have F-15s. First off, that's patently offensive for the president of the United States. Um, my president, whether I voted for him or not, it doesn't matter. He's still my president. To to make a, a a blatant threat of violence towards his own citizenry is problematic. But then just a complete lack of understanding of how insurgencies work. Um, the Taliban was able to hold on for 20 years with AK-47s, AK-74s, bolt-action Enfields, felt, you know, fed machine guns and RPGs and, you know, hand-launched rockets. 
for 20 years and then overthrow a superpower. So I, I think it's kind of short-sighted to say, well, we got F-15s. Um, yeah, you also have a couple million highly trained, well-armed patriots who actually believe in the Bill of Rights and believe in the right to self-determination. This is not where we want to be going as a country. No. And Americans have far better privately held weapon systems than almost any other country on the planet. There was a, a discussion at some point that said over 50% of the private arms in the world are owned by Americans, you know, and a very, very small population compared to some of the larger places. You think about the types, I mean, there are people in this country, and we probably know some of them, I know some of them, that own belt-fed machine guns. There are people that own cannons. There are people that privately own tanks in this country. And the other thing you have to assume that I think is absolutely something you cannot assume is that there's some sort of homogeneity in the military. And we've all worked in it. We understand what kind of people these are. There is no homogeneity in the military that says, Every single unlawful order I will follow. A large fraction of people know better. We know pilots that dissented from these opinions that said, look, I have a right to bodily autonomy, even in spite of this thing because of the certain laws that are set up to protect. Uh, the anthrax vaccine went through and, and already determined this. There's case law in favor of these guys' opinions. So there are certain objections you can make. And of course, now the Biden administration has shown that they were weak on the, on the vaccine idea. They've pulled away in spite of the fact that they had injunctions in the Fifth Circuit, there was an NBank review that said that they were wrong, that it was unconstitutional to begin with. And so all this stuff came back on them. And rather than hold and say, no, we have the courage of our convictions, we're correct. We, in fact, are doing the right thing. They said, the courts are gonna rule against us. We're gonna try to save that precedent so we can do it again. Right. And they withdrew their mandate. So they said, now you no longer have standing. I hope that doesn't work. I hope that it actually gets a full determination because we need some case law that says they yeah. can't do it. But the left is more than happy to push the legal aspect of it. Right and say, even though we're wrong and we know from the beginning, we're going to impose this incredible burden and cost on you and make you stand for your principles, and we're eventually going to crush you with it. And if you don't, you're a bad person. Correct. It, made a, it became a moral argument yeah. at yeah. every level. I think that, that new executive order now, rescinding the vaccine mandate, goes right back to what we were talking about earlier, an arbitrary or unrestrained use of power. That's exactly what that is. You force people, more or less, I mean, I guess you always have a choice, but more or less you force people to get a vaccine that many of them didn't want, but they got it because they thought, I can't lose my job over this, I have a family to feed or whatever. And now they can't get that out of their body. Right. But now you told them, oh, you actually don't have to get it. A permanent change. Right. We're at the hour mark, so that went fast, uh, quickly rather. I will have, George, uh, closing thoughts, long or short on America as we stand right now? I'm sorry, I'd like to say I'm long on America. I, I think we're headed to a very dark place that I pray every day doesn't takes us, passes us by. Mm -hmm. The storm clouds that you mentioned, the, the moving storm front. Yeah. Okay, Garrett. Oof, that's tough. Um, it's, I don't know, when I'm hopeful, I'm really hopeful that we're turning a corner because people are seeing what we're seeing, seeing what we're talking about, and they're like, yeah, I saw that too. And then on top of it, while one side is doing less to prop America up, the other side is doing more. We're, we're going back to our faith. We're going back to our roots. We're, we're reading. And, and technology is great in the sense that we can easily do a podcast from a hotel. We can easily search things and put them put other than for the helicopters in the beginning. <laughs> I was um, going to say, it's not that easy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, um, you know, we're having more kids and hopefully raising them in a God-fearing way. So for me, it's, it's my faith. It's I know God's hand is over all. And so when I'm hopeful, I think maybe we can turn a corner back for good on my worst days. I realize the Bible tells us many times that Satan is the one who controls this 
earth. And uh, that's allowed by God's hand, but um, all things eventually work together for his purpose. So I don't know the ending already, regardless of what happens to America. Totally fair point. I'm going to end it on saying that um, unlike the, the waffling, I actually feel long on America, but only in the long game. I think in the near term, I think George is 100% correct. I think we're going to see the storm clouds gather. We're going to see something uncomfortable. We're going to see difficulties, and that's going to be the difficult times that turn to make strong men right. from our children's generation. So the longer we stretch this thing out on a timeline, and I think George agrees, when the cold front comes in, it brings in that storm. I love the analogy. It's fantastic. Cool refreshing air. But the cool refreshing air comes in afterwards. And what does it make? It makes for a long growing season after that all the yeah. parts. You have to have movement of air. We've had a static situation in this country that that is festered, that is rotted, that has gotten to the point where there is a lot of energy, there is ready to be an electrical storm, there is going to be all those things. We can feel those, those clouds build up. But when the dam breaks and the water comes down, it washes everything clean, and when you wake up in the morning, the sunshine is, is clear and blue, and it's you know dropped 50 degrees, and everything feels great. That's kind of how I see this thing going. It won't be easy, uh, but, it, but it will be simple to just ride out and, and maintain principle. You 10 wanna... seconds. When that storm passes through, there will be some damage. There will be our neighbors who need help. So take advantage of that cool air when it arrives because we're going to have to go out and help our neighbors. That's right. End of the day, that's always my recommendation to people. I do, uh, folks, you probably know I do a lot of Twitter spaces. And the one thing that I always tell is that if you want to make a difference, you have to do it locally. You have to go out and meet your friends that you don't know are your friends yet. Go knock on your neighbor's doors if you've never met them. If you live in a traditional American neighborhood where you got 20 doors on either side of you and you don't know the people that live there, go figure out their names. Find out who they are now because you're going to need them later and they're going to need you in a big way. I have... Uh, a brand new house we just moved into. We've been in there for 60 days. And I know five of the neighbors already in the neighborhood, which is pretty darn good for most Americans' situation. And, and they're wonderful people. And most of them tend to agree with us. Some of them might even be listening to our podcast right now, which is kind of amazing. Um, my neighbor Corey is a really nice guy. My neighbor Steve is a really nice guy. I know a lot of Steves. And uh, my neighbor James, who lives right next door, is, an, is a Kenyan immigrant. And he's a wonderful person. And he's interested in bee farming and has a piece of property that he's building, you know, like the American dream. He's building his own house with his own two hands. So I wouldn't know that if I didn't go and say hello and engage with those people. So go and meet your neighbors the way you used to do. I saw someone saying Gen X standing strong. Uh, Gen X used to go and play with their neighbors outside. They would go out and do things that were fun with the people that were around them. So when the times were tough, they knew who to knock on to borrow uh, you know, a cup of sugar. They knew who to go say, hey, my, my power's out. I need some help. Can you help me flip the, the circuit breaker? They'd go to their friend who was an electrician or, hey, our water's not working. You know, we got a water main. Do you, have a, do you have a wrench to be able to open this? There used to be a culture in this country that did that. And we can get back to it uh, if we are just willing to kind of step outside that comfort zone. So once again, thank you so much, folks, for joining us. If you want to follow this podcast, you can hit subscribe right down below us. You can also uh, give us the thumbs up. We appreciate that. And if you want to hear more of it, by all means, send it to your friends. It'll keep going out there. I'm going to read one five-star review from our Apple. We have reached well over the 500. I think we're at 515. So you guys have come through big time with another 15 or so in a couple of days. This one is from Real Serenity, posted on Monday. Forever grateful. Kyle, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for continuing to expose the deep state in the swamp of D.C. Americans can learn more from listening to one episode of your podcast than a month's worth of propaganda by the cartel media. Please continue to expose all you can. God bless you and your family. God bless all of you folks that are listening and all my, my uh, two wonderful guests here, George and Garrett. Folks, we'll talk to you guys soon. And uh, we look forward to bringing you guys something pretty interesting in October from this meeting. You guys will see what this was all about. Uh, we'll see you again on Monday. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.